All right, so I want to just highlight for you, uh, once again, the uh, annual celebration here this evening. So if you've never been to one of these, it's really uh, one of the highlights, if not the highlight of the entire year. So we're going to come together as one church, Danville campus, 5 p.m., and we're going to celebrate all that God has done uh, in and through us over the last year. We're going to talk about what we believe the Lord uh, has for us in, in the days ahead. We're going to take care of a little business, elect some um, church officers, leaders. Uh, we're going to approve the budget for next year. But most of all, we're going to come and worship. We're going to pray. We're going to partake in communion. We're going to celebrate. All right? So um, if you're a member, uh, it's your responsibility to, to, to be here at all, if all possible. So we look forward to seeing all you members. And if you're not a member, we really invite you to come. Uh, it'll be a great time for you to be involved too. And it's just going to be a great evening. So uh, be with us here tonight at five o'clock. At six. At six o'clock? Did we, we change that? Okay. Okay. Six o'clock. There you go. So it'll be six o'clock this evening. I will be here. You be here too. All right? <laughs> Now, to celebrate uh, my 10th anniversary, I decided to preach two sermons today. Yeah. An introductory mini-sermon and then a regular full-length one. So I was looking back at some of the sermons that I preached when I first came uh, to Harmony, and I noted that they were like five to ten minutes longer than the average sermon I'm preaching today. Uh, I'm sure, by the way, you're thankful for that. Um, But uh, regardless, I thought that I could probably do two for one, two in the same amount of time uh, that I used to do one. I don't know if that's a a good idea to you, but it sounds like a great idea to me. Actually, I'll probably be shorter than last week, and here's why I really want to do this. Uh, Before we get to our text, I I want to take a few minutes to talk about how we can take the things that we've been talking about uh, in this series and move forward with them. Uh, I know many of us are stuck when it comes to applying what the Bible has to say about sex and marriage. And so I want to help us just uh, today to to get unstuck. So I I know that some of us are battling a porn addiction. Uh, Some of us are struggling with things like same-sex attraction. Uh, Some of us are really wrestling with how do I actually fulfill my sexual responsibilities uh, to our spouse. So um, if you're stuck, then let me give you three things this morning really quickly to get unstuck. These things are submission, repentance, and forgiveness. Getting unstuck always starts with submitting to God's word. If you're going to get unstuck, you have to commit to accepting that God's way is the best way and through the uh, power of the Holy Spirit to doing what God's word tells you to do. Along with that, if you're going to get unstuck, you must repent for not submitting to God's word. So to repent, the word means to turn around. Turn around. So repentance means turning from going your own way and starting to go God's way. And I want to point out that repentance isn't simply a one-time thing, but it's something that we must do constantly. Over and over again, we we must turn from, from, from wanting to go our own way and to commit anew to going God's way. Finally, if you're going to get unstuck, you must both receive and extend forgiveness. You must receive the wonderful truth that through Jesus, all of your sins, sexual and otherwise, have been forgiven, and that God has now taken your brokenness and made you beautiful. And again, this is something that you have to do continually. You must preach the gospel to yourself over and over until you start to see yourself as God sees you, which is completely clean, holy, and righteous. But then... 
not only do you have to receive forgiveness, but you also must extend it. Let me be clear. Some of you are stuck today because you refuse to forgive someone for what they have done to you. You're stuck in pain and anger and bitterness simply because you're refusing to treat someone the way that God has treated you. You're refusing to, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.32, to be kind, compassionate, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. So there's the mini-sermon. All right, start getting unsucked today. How do you do it? Submission, repentance, and then by extending and receiving forgiveness. On then to sermon number two. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn uh, once again to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, where in verses 10 through 16 uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at what the Apostle Paul has to say about marriage and divorce. Uh, marriage and divorce. Now, I probably don't need to tell you that the topic of divorce is both complex and sensitive. Complex and sensitive. It's complex because while the Bible gives some clear instructions regarding divorce, it doesn't directly address many of the scenarios that we find in 21st century America. Uh, This means, as R.C. Sproul once pointed out, applying what the Bible says about divorce often requires the wisdom of Solomon. And the danger with this complexity is that it can make us want to throw up our hands in the air and ignore the issue. Uh, I must confess there have been times where I've been tempted to do so. Uh, these things get so, so messy and difficult and trying to apply exactly what the Bible says just gets so hard sometimes. Uh, there have been, been a, a number of occasions where I just want to say, just, let's just forget it, okay? Let's just not deal with it at all. Let's just talk about easier and lighter things, things that are much more um, uh, palatable to people and are much easier uh, to apply. The problem, though, with this is that it's really not an option for a pastor and a church that's committed to the Bible as the final authority for all things pertaining to faith and practice. You understand what I'm talking about here? We can't say, well, that issue's too difficult. We're just not going to deal with it if we want to be faithful to God's Word. And that's why, despite the complexity, we must wrestle with what the Bible says about this issue. At the same time, divorce is sensitive because most of us have been impacted by it. Uh, Sources vary on the exact divorce rate in our country, but I I think it's fair to say that it's somewhere around 50%. So about half of all marriages in our country today end in divorce. This means if you aren't divorced, you almost assuredly have a family member or a friend who is. And therefore, divorce isn't just a theological issue, but it's a deeply personal one. More to the point, divorce has caused great pain and hurt to a large percentage of us, and honestly, the church hasn't always helped with this. In fact, at times, the church is piled on. Therefore, this is a very sensitive subject indeed. And that's why this morning, I'm going to strive to deliver this sermon with truth and grace. On the one hand, I'm going to do my best to clearly lay out what the Bible says about divorce. That's my, my job. But at the same time, I'm called and I want to speak with graciousness, a graciousness that I pray the Lord will use this morning and in days ahead to bring beauty out of brokenness, all right? So with truth and grace, let's look now at God's word. Paul says this in verse 10, to the married, 
I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I want to make three initial observations about this passage. Number one, Paul's addressing two different marriage situations a Christian might find themselves in. The first is found in verses 10 and 11 and is marriage to another believer. The second is found in verses 12 through 16 and is marriage to an unbeliever. Number two, in verses 10 and 11, Paul's reciting Jesus' teaching on divorce, and in verses 12 through 16, he's giving his own teaching on divorce. Now, we must understand two things here. One, Paul's teaching carries the same weight as Jesus' teaching. This this is a really key point, all right? So, so Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching on any issue, okay, that we, we find here in Scripture are equally authoritative, all right? So, I want you to go home today, and if you have one of those red-letter Bibles, I want you to get rid of it, all right? N- not really, okay? But what we need to understand is that they're all red letters because they all are inspired by the Holy Spirit, whether they come out of the mouth of Jesus or out of the pen of Paul. And, and therefore, what Jesus says on divorce and what Paul says on divorce are equally weighty, equally authoritative. Two, Paul supplements Jesus' teaching on divorce because Jesus didn't directly address divorce between a believer and an unbeliever. Uh, Last week, I told you that here in chapter 7, Paul is answering some questions that the uh, Corinthians had written him about, and apparently one of the questions that they had asked is, should we, now that we become believers, get divorced from our unbelieving spouses? Jesus never addressed this issue in the Gospels, and that's why Paul is providing his own instruction here. Number three, and this is a big one, Paul's main point in this passage is this. Are you ready? Here's the, the main message, the main point in this passage is stay married, don't get divorced. Stay married, don't get divorced. Or maybe we could put it this way. If you're married, stay married. This should be obvious, as four times of verses 10 through 13, Paul says that believers should not separate from or should not divorce their spouses. Now, just like last week, there are qualifiers coming, but before we get to them, once again, we must realize the big idea Paul's trying to get across here is abundantly clear. He's telling the Corinthians, stay married, don't get divorced. Stay married, don't get divorced. To further emphasize this, I will point out that in verses 17 through 24, we'll we'll look at these next week, but but those are the central verses in the passage, and in them, Paul repeats three times that the Corinthians are to remain in the condition in which they were called. To be called means to be saved. So he says, if, if you're single, and you were single when you were saved, stay single. If you were a bondservant when you were saved, remain a bondservant. And if you were married when you were saved, then remain married. 
I want you to listen closely here as this is the most important thing I'm going to say today. While yes, there are biblical grounds for divorce, ones that we will look at here in a moment, a Christian should never be searching for how they can get divorced, but rather should be searching for how they can save and sustain their marriage. Y'all with me on this? Let me say it again. A Christian should, should never go to the Bible and say, where does it tell me I can get divorced? How can I get divorced? Rather, the the Christian should go to the Bible and say, how can I save and how can I sustain my marriage? And that's because God wants those who are married to stay married. I know I'm being repetitive here, but in today's world, I don't think I can say it enough. As Christians, God wants us to stay married. Those of us who are married, God wants to stay married. Now, This doesn't mean it's always a sin to get divorced. In fact, it's not. There are biblical grounds for divorce, and if you have been divorced biblically, I'll explain more what that means in a moment, you should not feel any shame, okay? You should not feel any guilt. You should not think that God looks on your divorce with any displeasure at all towards you. That is certainly not the case. But all of this does mean that we should do all that we can to stay married. Or to put it another way, even when it's biblically permissible, divorce should be the option that we turn to as a last resort. With those observations in mind then, let's first turn to what Jesus says to believers who are married to believers, and then second, what Paul says to believers who are married to unbelievers. And for this, we're going to turn momentarily to Matthew 19. So we don't do this very often, but I want you to turn to another passage. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 7 and turn with me to Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19, where we find the teaching of Jesus about marriage and divorce that Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, we could just look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but let's look specifically at what Jesus has to say, and we're going to pick up in verse 3. Here's what, what Matthew records for us. And Pharisees came up to him, that's Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Pharisees come up to Jesus, they're trying to trap him and so they ask him essentially is no fault divorce okay? Is it okay to get divorced really for for, for any reason? And note how Jesus responds. How does Jesus respond? He responds by quoting what verse? Now, now by this point in this series, we should know what verse this is, right? You should read that there in verse 4, in verse 5, and you should know that Jesus is quoting what verse? Genesis 2. No, come on, folks. All right? We talked about this every week during this series. We had an entire message on it two weeks ago. Genesis 2, 4, the key foundational verse in the Bible on marriage, one that we should all know. So Jesus quotes, they say, should anybody, should we be able to get divorced for any reason? They want to talk about divorce, and what does Jesus push back about? What does he want to talk about? He wants to talk about marriage, and he quotes the foundational verse of marriage in the Bible, and then, after doing so, he goes on to say in verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And get this, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So get this, Jesus says that when a man and a woman are married, 
It's God who joins them together. God presides over every marriage ceremony between a man and a woman, and he is the one, not the state, not a pastor, not the church, not the justice of the peace, that puts a man and woman together. Y'all with me on this? Okay? In any marriage ceremony, there's actually not only a covenant between a man and a woman, but it's a covenant between a man and a woman and God. He's the one that unites them together. And then Jesus goes on to say this, and he says, so then, what God has joined together, let man not separate. That word separate, you know what it means? It means divorce. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7 when he talks about separating And that word means don't divorce your spouse. When God puts a man and a woman together, he says, do not tear that apart. Jesus says that God's plan for marriage is for a man and a woman to stay together until death do they part. Now, like many people today though, the Pharisees aren't satisfied with this answer and so they push back. Look at verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. The Pharisees want to know why, if God truly wanted marriage to be one man and one woman for a lifetime, did Moses give give a command regarding divorce? Now, the Pharisees are referring here to Deuteronomy 24, where Moses gave the Israelites instructions about divorce. In response, though, note that Jesus points out that Moses didn't give a command, but rather an allowance for human sin. You see, rightly understood, uh, Deuteronomy 24 doesn't give God's approval of divorce, but rather his regulation of it. In fact, this is another critical point. Nowhere in Scripture does God encourage divorce. Rather, in his grace, he gives instructions that regulate it. Let me explain. God knows that in a fallen world where human beings have hard hearts, divorce is inevitable. People are going to get divorce. And so, in his wisdom, his grace, his mercy, and his compassion, he gives regulations for divorce that are meant to protect and assist the non-offending party. I'm going to explain this again because it's really important. It's complicated, but it's important for us to get, all right? God never encourages divorce in the Bible, but, but he knows post the fall into sin that human beings, because they have hard hearts, are going to get divorced, and therefore, in accommodating this, he actually provides regulations to protect and to assist the non-offending party in the divorce, which is why Jesus goes on to say in verse 9, look at it, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So here we find the first legitimate or biblical ground for divorce, and that is sexual immorality or sexual sin. And I want to point out two things about this biblical ground for divorce. One, in the case of adultery, it makes divorce permissible but not required. If your spouse commits adultery, you are permitted to divorce, but you're not required to. Ideally, even when there is adultery, there will be repentance and then forgiveness 
and ultimately reconciliation. Now, I'm saying that's always possible, all right, but that would be the ideal even when there is adultery, that the one who has committed adultery would, would repent, all right, that there would be forgiveness and then ultimately reconciliation. Two, get this, there are no other grounds for divorce in a marriage between two believers. Let me be clear, the only ground for divorce between two believers is adultery. We all need to hear this loud and clear, all right? So, um, not being in love anymore is not a biblical ground for divorce. Thinking that you married the wrong person is not a biblical ground for divorce, all right? They don't meet my needs is not a biblical ground for divorce. They don't do things the way mama did it is not a biblical ground for divorce. He's not the man I thought I'd marry. Not a biblical ground for divorce. The, the only biblical ground for divorce between two believers is adultery. Look back at 1 Corinthians 7. Note again what Paul says in Verses 10 and 11, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul doesn't mention sexual immorality here, probably because it was accepted that this was a biblical ground for divorce. Therefore, in leaving it out, He's emphasizing that there are no other grounds for divorce amongst believers. Additionally, we need to understand that if we get divorced for any other reason than our spouse committing adultery, we have two options. We can remain unmarried or we can be reconciled to our spouse. Those are the two options available if believers divorce unbiblically meaning that believers divorce for reasons other than adultery. Now, you might be thinking, are you actually saying that there isn't ever another biblical ground for divorce? Is that really what you're saying, Pastor Chris? And here's what I want to say to that. It doesn't matter what I say. You, you realize that, right? It doesn't matter what I say. It only matters what the Bible says. And I'm trying to tell you what the Bible says. With that said, in verse 12 through 16, the Bible does give another legitimate ground for divorce, and that ground is abandonment by an unbeliever. Before we get to that, though, I need to emphasize that Paul's primary point in verses 12 through 16 is that a believer should stay married to an unbeliever if the believer consents to do so. Paul's clear about this in verses 12 through 13, and the reason he gives is that staying in the marriage provides a gospel influence both on the unbelieving spouse and also on the children. When Paul says that an unbelieving spouse and children are made holy by the believing spouse, he doesn't mean that they are saved, but rather he means that with a believer in the home, the Holy Spirit is in the home, and therefore the unbelieving spouse and children come under the Holy Spirit's influence. Does that make sense there? All right. He's, he's not saying that, that simply because an unbeliever is married to a believer, that the unbeliever is, is going to be saved. They're, they're saved because of that. You know what he's saying? That with an, a believer in the home, the Holy Spirit is there, and so that unbelieving spouse and those unbelieving children have direct influence in the place that they are doing life 
by the Holy Spirit and that there is therefore a great possibility that they are actually going to be saved. So here's some encouragement for those who are married to unbelievers. And and whether you know this or not, we have quite a few people in our church who are married to unbelievers. If this is you, I, I know that you might be in a hard situation, harder than I can imagine. And yet, Paul's telling you that you have such an opportunity to be an influence, not only on your spouse, but also on your children. Now, I know that it might seem hopeless that your spouse and maybe even your children would ever come to know Jesus, but what Paul says in verse 16, and when he says that, he is being very optimistic. He's saying, you don't know, you don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He very well may, through your influence, bring your spouse to the Lord. And I think we can also add, he very well may bring your children to the Lord. And I just want to say this to you. I'm, I, I know many of you personally, all right? You are just a huge encouragement to me. In the fact that, that many days I know it's just a struggle even to, to, to make it to church because you may have a spouse who's, who's not on board. They might even be pushing back against that. And, and yet you're here faithfully. You're bringing your kids. You have our kids in children's ministry or in our student ministry. And you're just doing all that you can. I love that. It's such a testimony to your love for Jesus. And I just want to encourage you to keep it up. And I want to encourage the rest of us, okay, to be praying diligently for our brothers and sisters who are married to unbelievers. All right, they need our prayer support, they need our encouragement. This is what it means to be the church. Let's come alongside them and truly be the family that they need to help and to support them in being Jesus in their home and being the gospel influence that they need to be in order that their spouses may come to know the Lord and their children may come to know the Lord. Let's commit to do that. That's it. In verse 15, Paul says that if an unbelieving spouse wants to leave the marriage, The believing spouse is free to let him or her go. Paul says in such cases, the believer is not bound, meaning that they can biblically divorce. So this is the second biblical ground for divorce, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. There are two biblical grounds for divorce. The first one is between two believers where there is adultery. The second one is where an unbelieving spouse deserts, abandons, wants out of the marriage with a believer. Now, I know that this leaves a lot of questions on the table, so I want to answer a few of them for you. I can't answer every question you might have, but I am going to answer for the most common. And let me just say this, if you have other questions, I encourage you to reach out to one of our elders, pastors, or, or staff members. And, and I know that I, I joke about email, but that really is what it is, it's just a joke. So if you have questions about this, and I'm sure that many of you are going to, feel free to email me, one of our other pastors, and, and we will be happy to try to answer these questions the best that we can. But here are answers to four of the most common ones, all right? First, what about remarriage? What about remarriage? Now, I could and I actually have done an entire message on this topic, uh, but I'm just going to give you the the really quick summary. Where divorce is permissible, either in a case of adultery or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, remarriage is possible. If you divorce with the biblical grounds of adultery or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, you are biblically permitted to remarry. Second, what about abandonment by a believing spouse? What if you are married to a believer and they unbiblically went out of the marriage. Well, this is where the church restoration process in Matthew 18 that Jesus gives us comes into play. 
If a professing believer unbiblically wants out of his or her marriage to another believer, then the church should step in and confront the offender, and if he or she refuses or fails to repent, the church should remove the individual from membership, at which point Jesus says they're to be treated as an unbeliever, which frees the uh, non-offending spouse to biblically divorce. Now, that's all kind of technical, and you might be like, whatever, let's just get on to the next point. It's actually a hugely important point for, for all of us to understand as followers of Jesus. One of the reasons it's important for us to understand is because it's something that Jesus told us to follow. And anytime Jesus tells us to follow something, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're going to seek to follow it the best that we can. Now, sometimes that gets really complicated. Here's one of the issues where it gets really complicated, but I'm just going to walk you through it because it applies to so many other areas, not just to, to marriage situations. But in this situation, as an example, if there is someone who professes to be a believer and they want out of the marriage unbiblically, in other words, they want out for reasons other than adultery, then the church is called by Jesus himself to step into the situation, to confront the offender, to seek to restore them so that they say, you know, I'm wrong, I should not be trying to get out of my marriage, to seek to restore that marriage, but then if they refuse to listen, those are literally the words that Jesus says, if they refuse to listen, i.e. they refuse to repent, The church is to remove that person from membership, which Jesus then says we are to treat that person as an unbeliever, which would then free the non-offending spouse up to divorce because now they are being abandoned by an unbeliever. Some of you are like, that's just crazy. What in the world are you talking about? Let me tell you what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Bible. (laughs) Okay, I'm talking about what Jesus clearly laid out for us. This, by the way, is one of the reasons that church membership is so important. Church membership is just vitally important, especially when it comes to matters of marriage. Because if you ever were to get yourself in a situation where you have a believer, you're married to a believer, but they say, I want out of the marriage for reasons other than adultery, you need the church to come alongside to walk through the church restoration process, hopefully to bring your marriage back so that there's reconciliation, right? That's really what we are after. But as a last resort, if that can't happen, then you need the church to remove the person from membership, declaring them an unbeliever so that you are biblically permitted to divorce. Complicated, yes. But the teaching of Jesus, yes. Here's the third and fourth questions and I'm gonna tackle together. I'm going to talk them together because I'm going to give the answer to both. So third, what constitutes abandonment? And fourth, what constitutes adultery? There are a whole lot of sub-questions under each of these. For example, does abandonment include physical abuse? What about emotional or verbal abuse? Does adultery include an emotional affair or pornography? And on and on the questions go. And... Let me say that these are all good, legitimate questions. But here's the only thing that I believe that I can say from the pulpit. I believe the only thing I can say is that we can't give blanket answers to these questions. We can't just give a clear-cut answer on these matters without knowing more information about the specific situation. Therefore, these questions really need to be answered in a case-by-case basis in consultation with church leaders. In fact, let me be clear that I won't answer any of these questions on my own, 
but only together with my brothers on our LRT. I might, I realize you might want answers, and I realize you might even be uncomfortable with this. And honestly, I am sympathetic to that, especially to those of you in difficult situations, of which there are a number of you. But I want to plead with you that this is what's safest. It's what's for your best. In fact, can I say this? You you should never get divorced without consulting your elders. You you should never do that. Why? Let me tell you why. Because God takes unbiblical divorce very seriously. And you do not want to be making the decision on whether you are permitted to get divorced on your own. One of the reasons for that is that when you're in the midst of it, emotions are high. Most people are not thinking exactly right, all right? And so, you need godly, wise people to come around you, to look to the scriptures, to pray, and to help you to discern if you are biblically permitted to divorce. I just want to plead with you, this is what's safest, this is what is for your good, this is what is your best, and so I urge you to to, to only enter into these things in consultation with the men whom God has placed in your life to care for your soul. In fact, Hebrews 13, 7 says this, and uh, I also hesitate to say this because of how it's, it's, it's normally taken and all. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them as ones who must give account because they are caring for your souls. So so one day, I and the other elders of this church are going to stand before Jesus Christ. And he's going to say, how have you cared for and shepherded the people that I put under your leadership? That's a heavy load. It's a big load. But if we're going to be able to do that, and we want to do, we desperately want to do that, that requires you actually allowing us to, to do it. It's a two-way, you see, it's a two-way street, and it's for, ultimately, for our good, and it's for God's glory. And so I just urge you on that point. Now, in closing, I want to address three groups of people, all right? Three groups of people I want to talk to before we're done. First, if you're divorced, I want you to hear that the gospel offers healing, I know that what we're talking about today is hard, but whether or not your divorce was biblical or unbiblical, the gospel offers healing. In fact, the thing I want you to walk away from today is that God gets the final word in your life, not your divorce. Did you get that? God gets the final word in your life, and his final word is always grace. It's never condemnation. So, so whether you've divorced biblically or unbiblically, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I just want to encourage you, I, I know that this may have been hard to hear. I, I feel for you. I, I, this weighed heavily on me this week, even as I'm speaking right now, because I don't want you to feel condemned, because if you're in Christ Jesus, you're not condemned. And I just want to encourage you to, to look to his grace and allow his grace to motivate you to live a life going forward that's not defined by what's been done to you or by you, but rather by what Jesus did for you in his death and resurrection. To those who are single, we talk to you singles, I wanna urge you to make Jesus the center of any dating relationship from the beginning, right from the start. And we're gonna talk a lot more about singleness uh, next week, 
But for now, I just want to say that if you have a desire to be married, then please realize that a healthy marriage starts with choosing the right kind of person to date. And the right kind of person to date is a person who loves Jesus. You might think that person is the best thing since sliced bread, but if they don't love Jesus, stay away from them. If that guy is the guy of your dreams, but he doesn't love Jesus, he's probably going to end up as your nightmare. That's hard, I know. But here's the deal. You're eventually going to marry somebody you date. Makes sense, right? You're going to marry somebody you date? So only date people who love Jesus, and then you'll have a lot better chance of having a healthy marriage. It's not a guarantee, but you'll be a far away, a great, it's a, be a far away greater probability. I butchered that, but you get the idea, right? Now, let me talk to those who are married. Let me give you the final word. If you're in a healthy marriage, continue to invest in your relationship because it is the best investment that you can make. Why is it the best investment you can make? It's the best investment you can make because a healthy marriage is the greatest gift that you can give to yourself, to your children, to the church, and to the world. Why is it the greatest gift? Because the greatest gift ever given is the gospel. And a healthy marriage is the greatest picture of the gospel this side of heaven. Y'all tracking with me here? If you want to bless yourself, you want to bless your children, you want to bless your church, you want to bless your world, invest in your marriage because as your marriage displays health, it will display the gospel. And when the gospel is displayed, it blesses everybody who sees it. You know what we need in our country the most? First, we need singles who are going to live celibate singleness for the glory of God. And then we need married couples who are going to strive to love one another the way Christ has loved the church. Because when those two things are going on, our country will have everything it needs. The gospel displayed all over the place. Now, on the other hand, if you're in a struggling marriage, here's what I say to you. And there are a lot of you. In fact, can we just be honest? If you're married for any length of time, this will be you at some point. Amen. Can everybody say amen to that? It's all right. Thank you. Yeah, you can talk about that later. But when your marriage is struggling, let me say this to you. Do not give up. Do not throw in the towel. Keep fighting. Not with your spouse, but for your marriage. And I know, in all honesty, I know that you might feel like things are too far gone, but if you will submit to God's word, if you will repent, if you will receive and extend forgiveness, Jesus will be with you and will help you to rebuild what seems hopelessly broken. Friends, this this is the gospel. The gospel is the fact that with God, all things are possible. If God could raise Jesus from the dead, he can raise your marriage from the dead. And so look to Jesus, allow his death and resurrection to motivate you to fight for your marriage, and then trust that he will be with you as you do so. Now, we're going long, but I'm going to share personally, and and, and then we'll be done, all right? Because my marriage is a living testimony to what I just shared with you. You might think that as a pastor, and even up here this morning, we're all lovey-dovey, laughing. We have a perfect marriage. And I don't know about the other pastors, but that's not true for us. It's not even close. 
And it's not been true for us for the entirety of our marriage. Now, let me just say this. We have a good marriage. We deeply love one another. Our marriage is the best place it's ever been. But it's been a struggle. She'd probably say it's been more of a struggle than I would say it's been a struggle. That's because she's married to me instead of me married to her. All right? But let me just tell you a little bit of our story. We got married relatively young, and we got married without premarital counseling. Not a good idea. We were hundreds and hundreds of miles from home. We were not in a good church, and we had absolutely no one pouring into us whatsoever. The fact that we're standing up here today is simply a miracle and a gift of God. Not just in bringing us here, but that we are still together as husband and wife. And the reality is, is that this really hit the fan pretty quickly, a couple of months into our marriage, when I was already frustrated and I said to even one day, five words that I regret, I think I've told you this before, but I literally said to her, I'm not making this up, you're no kind of wife. Not a good thing, right? It's something I'll never forget, she'll never let me forget, okay? <laughs> the truth is, I was extremely frustrated, like, what in the world have I got myself into? And even a short time after that, told one of her friends, like, this is not going to work. Now, again, by God's grace, we made it through that. There have been lots of other ups and downs over the years, and we've been through a lot. Sometimes I don't think about that, but we have been through a lot. We've had two really difficult moves. We've had three really painful ministry um, exits. We've had about one surgery a year. Lot, I'm, I'm not making that up. Lots of medical issues, the death of a child, and lots and lots of other difficulties through the years. Yet, here's what I want to tell you. There's, there's probably just one thing that we have done well over the last 25 years, and here's the thing that we've done well is fight. We have scratched and we have clawed sometimes at each other, but more significantly with each other and for each other. Motivated by the gospel, by what God has done for us, we have just refused to give up and we have fought day in and day out for 25 years, and we're going to do it for another 25 years, should God allow us to do it. Now, I'm not telling you to look to us, because there's a lot of things where I tell you not to look to us, but I am telling you to do one thing that we have done, and that is fight. Motivated by what Jesus Christ has done for you and his death and resurrection, fight. And as you do, he will take your brokenness, and he will make something beautiful out of it. That's our story. It can be your story if you won't give up. Do not give up up. Do not give up. Fight, fight, and God will take your brokenness, and he will make something beautiful. Let's pray.